ignition sequence start. Three, two, one. Lock and load. It's time for the gun rack with your hosts, Joey and Drew. Welcome, everyone, to the gun racks and Desert Institute School of Firearm Technology's official podcast. I'm Josiah Upper. Folks call me Joey, and with me, I have one Drew Poplin. Drew Poplin who is going to be doing a lot of talking today. We'll get to that in just a minute. But we're glad you guys are here. We're going to be talking about a fort from the Revolutionary War times that uh, Drew actually had the opportunity to go visit in person and learn quite a bit about. So we're going to take the opportunity to get another history podcast episode in there. It's been a hot minute, so we're excited for that. But before we do that, Drew Poplin is, in fact, on the clues. Drew's clues. What do we have this week? All right. So uh, real quick, last week's answer was the six-hour P320. P320. We got a couple more clues for you. Completely different firearms. So let's get into it. Clue number one. This is a machine gun. I am not at liberty to disclose whether it's a light machine gun or a heavy machine gun, but I would put my money on a LMG. Clue number two, it started development in the 1960s, but wasn't released into service for the U.S. Army until 1984. And clue number three, this is an adaptation of Ethan's Mini-Me. Interesting. It is not Austin Powers. It's not. I can't go to give you that clue, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. That stuff is awesome, and uh, next week you're going to get the answer to this one, so stay tuned for that, and we'll get into the next week's Drew's Clues. Be waiting for that. And Before we get into the main topic here, are you interested in a career in firearms technology? Well, Sonoran Desert Institute School of Firearms Technology can help you craft your firearms future. Uh, Sonoran Desert Institute's curriculum involves all sorts of good stuff with firearms technology. You can check that out at sdi.edu. If you're not already taking classes with us, we would love to have you become a part of our little family here. We hope to hear from you soon. Once more, that's sdi.edu. Okay, so now that that is out of the way, let's talk about Fort Stanwicks. Drew, you have become something of an expert here in Fort Stanwicks. Uh, what can you tell us? Yeah, about as much as an expert as we could reasonably consider ourselves on this podcast. But Fort Stanwicks, on its surface, does not appear to be very interesting at all. But much like one of those conspiracy films or like one of those investigative thrillers, the webs just go deeper and deeper and deeper until you uncover something that's truly, really cool. So this is the story of the fort that never surrendered. Now, I'm trying to get through this sort of early history stuff as quick as I can, gets up to speed at least to the 18th century. So the territory in this part of New York, for a long time, it served an important trail for various Native Americans traveling between Lake Ontario and the Atlantic Ocean. So for thousands of years, these tribes, they used these portage paths that connect 
the areas of land between the Mohawk River and Wood Creek. Fast forward to when the settlers arrived, the area would become known as the Oneida Carry. And this was an area that was vital for both parties, both the European settlers and the natives, especially when fur became an important trading commodity. The British, in particular, they exerted more control over the area in the 1720s due to how important of an area it became. So in this area, you have to remember what America was like in the early 18th century. It wasn't as dominated by British rule as you might have believed. So in this area, you have British colonists, the French, other countries with like different interests in the area. And then you also had the Six Nations. Now, I wish I could go into a full-blown episode on the history of the Six Nations, because frankly, it is very fascinating. But for now, what you need to know is that the Six Nations started off as the Five Nations. They were comprised of the Seneca, Cayuga, Onondaga, Oneida, and Mohawk tribes, who essentially united in this confederation. Take a look at the history of the Six Nations and the Great Tree of Peace and their system of government. Uh, Many scholars actually argue that their system of government partially inspired America's today. So that is very fascinating. Around 1720, the Tuscarora Nation uh, was actually admitted as the sixth member. So then it became the Six Nations. We'll be talking more about them here in a little bit. But right now, all you need to know is that you have all these different players in this area. So the Oneida Carry was this proverbial powder keg, and it was waiting to ignite. And in 1754, that match was lit. Now, if you remember our George Washington episode, you'll remember about early on in his military career, Pretty much the first thing he did was fail at Fort Necessity and inadvertently started the French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War, depending on what name you want to go with. So war was in effect. It wasn't officially declared by the British until 1756. But for all intents and purposes, there were battles happening. It's here that I feel like I should remind you that strategy, especially war strategy, involves many more aspects than just battlefield tactics. It's more than just, hey, you know, we need to flank the enemy at this position. Maybe we can get them in this formation. Generals, they have to think about all sorts of things. You have to think about stuff like location, supply routes, access to natural resources. That's just amongst many other things, but especially supply lines. Essentially, sever the enemy supply line, and they'll eventually be forced to surrender seen this many times throughout history. Now, the British recognized that in order to carry out an attack on Fort Niagara, they would need to reinforce a garrison of their troops in Oswego. One thing you need to know about Oswego is that it's also along that northern New York border, but it's further east. So basically, they wanted to move troops to Oswego, that way they could eventually launch an attack on Fort Niagara. Now, there were a few issues with this strategy. When forces were coming in for Britain, they were being deployed from Albany, which was in the eastern part of the state. Oswego and Fort Niagara, they were more northwest of the state. So the distance from Albany to Oswego is about 200 miles, which that's a fair amount of distance now. Just imagine it back in the day. So with so much territory between the two, 
the British would need to make a concerted effort to strengthen their hold on the area in between there. As we established before, the United Carrying Place was an area with many players. So with many players, they really need to fo focus on having this route be strengthened as much as possible. So the governor of Massachusetts at the time, William Shirley, he was preparing to attack from Oswego. They eventually made their way up. And in 1755, the weather during the fall made it imprudent to be able to proceed. They would not be able to really mount a significant attack. And even if they did and managed to take over the fort, you have to think about getting supplies there during the harsh winters. Uh, so essentially, they realized they needed to postpone this attack until the following year. So as they were going back to Massachusetts, they're thinking, oh, we don't want to drag all these soldiers to Massachusetts and then bring them all the way back. So the smart thing to do was to leave soldiers spursed out in this area of New York for the winter. Governor William Shirley sent 180 of these men back to the Oneida carrying place. He also instructed Captain, and I'm not making this up, William Williams and Captain Marcus Petrie to construct two forts in the area. So they constructed these forts, and I'll give you a guess as to what Captain William Williams called his fort. Was it Fort Williams? It was Fort Williams. Yeah. Uh, cre credit to Captain Petrie, he called his Fort Bull, which sounds infinitely cooler. Unfortunately, that's about as much credit as I can give him, because in 1756, that very next year, the French would successfully carry out an attack on Fort Bull, burn it to the ground, and this dealt a massive blow to British forces who, at the time, they were in desperate need of supplies after the long winter. So what did the British do? They decided to rebuild, and not just rebuild, they wanted to further build. So the destroyed Fort Bull would go on to be replaced by Fort Wood Creek in the same location. They would also construct Fort Newport and Fort Craven sort of in between those two forts uh, to further strengthen that area. But you still had those troops at Oswego that were coming off of a long winter. They were running out of supplies, definitely in no position to attack. So the British realized they needed to go up there to help the troops at Oswego. Before they could do that, they were informed that the French had already taken over Oswego. So what this did, this left the Oneida Carry now in a pretty vulnerable path. With no Oswego, this meant that as far as Western New York goes, the Oneida Carry place was the westernmost stronghold that the British had. So General David Webb, now in command of the area, he was given orders that if they had to retreat, if they absolutely had to, if there was no other option, they needed to burn down all the forts in the area. So the French came down, British didn't have enough troops, so they basically did scorched earth. It's like, hey, we're not letting these forts fall into your hands because we would like to eventually gain a foothold here once again. And that's exactly what the British would do, albeit it was in 1758. So 1758, the British sort of reestablished their presence in the area. And in order to build, they needed to first have permission from the Oneida Nation which is where the Oneida Carrying Place name came from. It came from the tribe that was there, the Oneida Nation. And the British promised the Oneida Nation that once the war was concluded, the fort would be demolished. The Oneida Nation agreed to this. So this commenced the building of Fort Stanwigs, led by General John Stanwigs. And that commenced that very same year, but would not end up seeing any action 
in the war because in 1763, war ended. So by 1763, Fort Stanwix, it had been hastily made, so it wasn't in great shape. It was dilapidated and definitely in no condition for any sort of defensive stand. So at this point, the British didn't really want to put resources, you know, now that the war was over, they didn't want to put resources into building this fort back up. And then there was also the matter of the deal they made with the Six Nations about tearing down the fort. It's at this time that a pretty important character in this whole narrative comes into frame. His name was Sir William Johnson. He is one of these figures that has been lost to history, I feel like. I never had heard of him until I started doing research for this episode. But what he would become most renowned for was his work serving as a liaison of sorts between the Six Nations and the British. Eventually, he ended up actually being adopted into the Mohawk Nation, and he would take Molly Brandt, who was a Mohawk woman, as his second wife. So he really focused on forging these strong alliances between the British and the Six Nations. And it was his work that helped allied the Six Nations with the British, or at least in terms of where the Six Nations weren't going to be actively attacking the British. And then eventually, as the war starts reaching its conclusion, and it's clear that the French would not win the war, the Six Nations would officially become allies of Britain. But before that, uh, Britain was actually struggling early on. If the Six Nations would have joined up with the French, that would have bared some pretty disastrous outcomes for the British. The very next year, there was a united uprising by Native Americans that would break out. Um, some of you may have heard this name before, but Pontiac's Rebellion. And because of the work Johnson had done in cultivating such a solid relationship with the Six Nations, uh, they didn't participate in that rebellion. So when you have this big confederation of people that are teaming up together, you definitely want to be able to get on their good side. So credit to William Johnson. He was able to help, from a British perspective, get on the good side of the Six Nations. Also, fun fact, another name for the Six Nations was the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, that's a name that maybe you have heard before. So when I say the Iroquois Confederacy or the Six Nations, I'm talking about the same group. So having said all this, Sir William Johnson was not perfect. In fact, he was actually pretty self-serving. Many argue that was the reason in the first place he wanted to serve as liaison and forge such a strong alliance with the Native peoples in the first place. He was one of the few that recognized how beneficial this could be to the colonists. So taking this fact of his character in consideration, what he did in 1768 might not be as much of a surprise as he might have initially thought. Well, what happened in 1768? So do you remember that treaty I was talking about a couple minutes ago? This is where it comes into play. So at Fort Stanwix, the British and the Six Nations signed a treaty that focused on the renegotiation of boundary lines between the European settlements and the land of the natives. So from the British perspective, the goal was to bring it into all this frontier violence that had just marked the earlier days of this arrangement. Now, Johnson, who was working as liaison, he saw an opportunity to grab more land. Uh, so what did he do? He ignored his orders. He overstepped his position and he pushed the boundary further west than the British had intended. 
The Six Nations, you might ask why they agreed to this. Well, the land that they gave up was land that essentially makes up what Kentucky is today. As you can imagine, this came as quite a surprise to the tribes who actually lived there, who had no say in the matter. Uh, as you can also imagine, this didn't help quell the violence, as both parties might have hoped. In fact, really, the only people who benefited from this was Sir William Johnson and some of his pals. Uh, pretty much everyone else ended up being screwed because Johnson wanted to get some more land. So with the treaty agreed upon, Fort Stanwix would then officially be abandoned by British forces. My understanding is that the fort was not destroyed like they had promised, but they did abandon it. Now, the fort would not remain abandoned for long because a little event called the Revolutionary War kicked off in 1776. And Fort Stanwix would become an important cog in the American War for Independence. So despite his selfishness eight years prior at Fort Stanwix, Sir William Johnson can partially be credited with the revival of the fort. So at the different Native American tribes that made up the Six Nations, Fort Stanwix was situated in Oneida territory. Now, war rarely affects only those who fight the battles. Sometimes other people groups end up being drawn into the fray. From the Six Nations perspective, this was a civil war, not a war for independence. So it honestly it was really sad what ended up happening between the Six Nations. This ended up fracturing the group as excluding the Oneida Nation and the Tuscaroras. The rest of the Six Nations, they would actually end up siding with the British. So you have the Six Nations during the French and Indian War. Uh, for the most part, they were able to remain neutral. Fast forward a couple of years, and now you have brother fighting brother. It's honestly really, really sad. But because now the Oneida had to worry about four of their former brothers attacking them, they actually urged the colonists to reoccupy Fort Stanwix. The Oneida people would have protection provided by their allies, and the Americans would now be able to block attacks on New York from British-occupied Canada. Colonel Elias Dayton and the 3rd New York Regiment would arrive at the abandoned fort in July of 1776. So, Joey... Now you're arriving to this fort and it has been dilapidated and abandoned for a couple of years. What's the first course of action that you would take? Lick it. That was pretty close, honestly, to what they did. They decided the most important, uh, the most vital thing to do was to change the name of it first. So it aligned more with American values. Uh, you gotta, you gotta focus on Is the for Apple Pie. <laughs> uh, no, uh, actually, if you are familiar with Hamilton, this name may uh, be familiar to you. They renamed the fort to Fort Schuyler, named after General Philip Schuyler. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So now that the fort had been renamed and made more American, now they could actually commence with repairs. So let's fast forward a little bit. Let's fast forward to, uh, say, April 1777. At this time, Colonel Peter Gonzavort, he arrived with the 3rd New York Battalion, and they were basically arriving to help continue repairs on the fort. Soon after, word spread that a British force would be coming to invade Albany. And if you remember where Fort Stanwix is situated, you realize that between Canada and Albany, you have Fort Stanwix, essentially. So to counter this, 
they brought in more troops uh, from Massachusetts. So at the time, the fort basically ended up being filled with 800 continental soldiers, uh, local militiamen, and um, Oneidans. They would not have to wait long for the British to arrive. In fact, August 2nd of that year, the British arrived with 2,000 men. These men, they were made up of British soldiers, British loyalists, Germans, Canadians, and British allied Native Americans. Uh, so they arrived August 2nd at Fort Schuyler slash Fort Staywinks. So just think of the situation right now. Um, again, I mentioned you have Continental soldiers, militiamen, and the Oneidan Nation warriors all inside this fort. And because of this fact, the fact that you had a bunch of men from different cultural backgrounds, and the fact that they needed to somehow feed 800 men a day, things appeared kind of bleak for the Americans stationed at Fort Schuyler. Things looked worse on August 6, when an American militia that was composed of 800 Americans and 60 Oneidan scouts, they had heard that the fort was under siege by the British. So they were making their way up to Fort Stanwix or Fort Schuyler, whatever you want to call it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch back and forth between them, just roll with it. So they were on their way to the fort you know, to assist. They were intercepted by a group of British loyalists and their Native American allies at the Battle of Oriskany. And it was not a good day for American forces. Pretty much it was more or less an ambush. So while the Battle of Oriskany, this could have been disastrous. While it could have been, quick thinking by Gonzavort actually ended up saving the day. So they realized that the enemy camps, because they were attacking this force, the enemy camps were empty. So Gonzavort sent 250 men from the fort to raid and loot the unoccupied camps. And so when the British and the, their native allies, they returned to their camps, they found that they had been raided. And this actually caused a serious strain on the relationship between the British and the Native American allies. So it ended up kind of being a long-term victory for the Americans somehow. Um, and that was not the end of the proverbial light in the tunnel. And here is a name you definitely should recognize. American General Benedict Arnold. Yes, that Benedict Arnold. He heard of the siege on Fort Schuyler. So on August 12th, Arnold would march to the fort with a force of 700 men, and they would basically arrive within striking distance about eight days later. Now, he knew that his 700 men would still not be enough to take on the 2,000 British troops. So how do you win a situation like this? Joey, so you are Benedict Arnold right now. You have 700 men, and you're going to assist Fort Stanwicks that has 800 men inside it. So total, that is about, we'll say uh, 1,500. Uh, realistically, it's already less than that. And you have to defeat the British forces that are sieging the fort, and they have 2,000 men. Hmm. If they're besieging the fort, maybe find somewhere in their perimeter to break through and mm -hmm. uh, get some supplies inside, but also try to roll up their lines that way. I don't know, yeah. I'm not a general. No, but th that, was, that was actually what I thought was, you know, he was gonna do. So like that, my mind went to the same place. Um, well, Arnold had a different strategy. How do you want a situation like this? Simple, you lie. Uh, essentially what he did, he spread disinformation 
enough to where word arrived to the British commander, whose name was Brigadier General Barry St. Ledger. He heard that Arnold was about to arrive with 3,000 men. Suddenly, the situation changes drastically. So with this seemingly large disparity in troops, and you know, now they have a fractured relationship with their native allies, on August 22nd, which is two days after Arnold had got within striking distance, the British would call off the siege on Fort Stanwix. And now, as far as Fort Stanwix is concerned, that was pretty much it for their involvement in the war. I know, very disappointing. You know, you had some raids here and there. Um, it was the staging point for attack out, you know, at one time. The rest of its time during the war, if you were to describe life at Fort Stanwix in a movie, it would be less the Patriot and more Jarhead, if that makes any sense. Essentially, um, boredom and tepidity and tedium, it, it was rampant throughout the camp. And this led to troops being antsy. And antsy troops leads to court-martialings. Um, it's actually a little intimidating. When you walk in, you can clearly see there's a pole where they would uh, do 100 lashes with a cat of nine tails to, you know, people they, to soldiers they felt were stepping way out of bounds. But eventually by 1781, all this and nature had finally taken its toll on the fort. The Americans, they had this fort that needed repairs badly, and they didn't have resources to repair it. So unfortunately, General Washington had to make the call to ultimately abandon the fort. In terms of any military capacity, that would be the very anticlimactic end to the fort that never surrendered. Now, at this point, it's very tempting to ask yourself, well, what's the big deal? Drew, why would you feel like this was good enough content to do an episode on? Well, I was thinking that at first as well. I, I gotta confess, I was doing the research and I'm like, well, this is honestly a little lame, like, you know, kind of a cool story or whatever, but you know, it doesn't, you know, what's the point? It didn't really seem like it served a lot of significance. But then I started digging deeper into the full history of the fort, you know, the things that took place even before the French and Indian War. And when you do that, you realize how this fort, this seemingly innocuous fort, is linked to so many other events and occurrences in history that it shaped the fates of multiple nations. Take the Six Nations, for example. So before the revolution, the Six Nations, they were this strong alliance that held sway in the area. After the revolution, it was no more. Fort Stanwix, for its part, you know, wasn't completely done. It would at least hold peaceful negotiations between the now United States and the Six Nations. In 1784, a treaty was signed to end the war for the two parties. But while there was peace, at least temporarily, there was no reconciliation. Tribe had fought tribe, and the Six Nations Alliance was, for all intents and purposes, no more. And you can't help but wonder how things might have been different had the conflict in the area around Fort Stanwix been fought either somewhere else or if the Six Nations had remained united. How would that change things? More so is known about the impact 
these battles had on both the Americans and the British. See, while there was no heroic stand at Fort Stanwix, like there was, it wasn't something you would imagine a siege on a fort looking like. The sheer fact that it even occurred was important enough to inadvertently change the course of history. And it would only actually take another month or two to see why, if you're looking hard enough. See, remember I mentioned Brigadier General Barry St. Ledger? See, because his force was occupied with the siege of Fort Stanwix, they would not be able to arrive to help another British force that would come across their old nemesis, Benedict Arnold. The result of this, nothing major, just an American victory at the Battle of Saratoga. Do you see where I'm going with this? So that there's no victory at Saratoga, then arguably there's no alliance that comes from the French. Actually, uh, if you go to battlefields.org, which was one of the sources I used, the other mainly being the nationalparkservice.org, uh, they have a lot of content on Fort Stanwix and a lot of this. Um, but if you go to battlefields.org, they actually talk about how it was the victory at the Battle of Saratoga that convinced the French that the Americans could stand up to the British, and thus it'd be reasonable for them to join them in the war. So with no French allies, then it, you really start questioning whether the Americans even win the war. No war won means no America. And all of this is because of this one fort that's in the middle of Rome, New York. And because of that, the, the legacy of Fort Stanwix, it, it still reverberates throughout time, albeit quietly. But if you listen closely, you can still hear it sing a sonata of significance. And that is Fort Stanwix. All right, everyone. So that is Fort Stanwix. But uh, keep tuned in, everyone, because we've got a couple things left for you here today. One is going to be Tales from the Range. Uh, and then we've got uh, a little something else for you, too. But first, let's get into Tales Tales from the Range. This one comes from the High Road, the username Nobius, and this is a favorite of Drew's, but I get to read it because he just did all the So actually, things, that was so. the first part of the uh, text. Oh, dang it. It's a okay. favorite of Nobius's. It's a favorite of Nobius's, but it's also a favorite of Drew's. I've decided it is canon. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Me and a longtime group of hunting buddies had a real miserable day in the dove field. They only saw a handful of birds and nobody had hit anything. As we were walking back to the truck, one guy throws his hat up into the air and takes a shot at it. We were on private land and we knew that the area was safe for this kind of thing. Well, this of course leads to the rest of us doing the same thing, except now everyone is firing at the hats in the air. Fast forward to the last guy. Hat up, guns following, but only the hat owner firing. Hat on the ground, successive shotgun blasts, hat confetti. Good stuff, short and sweet. I can't say I've ever done that one either. I don't know if I would no. have any hunting hats that I'd be willing to destroy. No, but it does seem like something that would happen in a Looney Tunes cartoon. And yes. that for me was funny enough. Yeah, where like the guy who is shooting is also jumping in improbable heights in the air but the the recoil is not affecting him as such mm -hmm. um i i, I had the image of yosemite sam throwing his hat onto the ground and like, oh darn dude we're so frazzled yep exactly that 
Yeah. So one last thing before we leave, we're going to mention it one more time. If you are interested in the world of firearms technology, come check out Sonora Desert Institute. We have an awesome place for you to study. Uh, we are an online school, which means that you can study from the comfort of your own home. And uh, we would love to have you be a part of the SDI family. We also have a school of unmanned technology that's going to be a lot to do with drones. Um, so if you are not interested in studying firearms technology, which absolute madness, um, at least pop by for the drones. It'd be a good time. All right. For now, that's it for the gun wreck. We'll catch you guys next week. Have fun out there, and we will see you at the range. Sonoran Desert Institute is an online school accredited by the DEAC. It is headquartered at 1555 West University Drive in Tempe, Arizona. For more information about how you can craft your firearms future, visit sdi.edu.